Hello, and welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me. I'm Katie Daly. This week, our guest is David Morris, who's spent his entire career as a writer. He's retired now from political reporting, but he's not yet put down the pen. Today, he splits his time between his home in Maryland and Nashville, where he uses his considerable writing skills for songwriting. In this episode, Howard Parker talks with David about the art and the business of songwriting. I think today's conversation, we want to talk about your, uh, your career in songwriting and um, certainly talk about the art. Um, but I think more um, after talking about the art, I, I think we'd like to talk about the business aspects and what the, uh, the up-and-coming songwriter really should know as far as the legal aspects of songwriting and the financial aspects of songwriting. Such as they are. <laughs> Such as they are. Uh, but to talk about the art, I mean, you've been a wordsmith for as long as I've known you. Professionally, you've, you've been a journalist. You still are a journalist writing for bluegrass journals, but you were a political journalist for decades and decades, were you not? Thanks for reminding me. I've been trying to forget that. I retired uh, two years ago, um, the middle of April. So two years ago from today when we're, when we're taping this, uh, from my day job as a political journalist in Washington. Um, it, it just, after 40 years, it felt like time, and I wanted to devote more time to songwriting. I still write for Bluegrass today, and I write songs, and I try to study as much as I can the music business uh, so that I know what I'm doing and can pass that along. But um, um, I think that first career helped the second career quite a bit. Writing is writing, is writing and good writing is good writing. I... I have always, writing as a journalist, I've always had rhythms in my head. Um, some people would say that that can be treated, but um, it, they were always there. I always wrote to an internal rhythm, uh, not so much a melody, but a, like a beat. And I think that helped my journalistic writing, and it certainly helps my songwriting. And uh, I mean, you were a political journalist, and this applied to your political writing. Cor correct. Um, I reached a point in my career fairly early where I used to drive my desk mates crazy. I edit by reading out loud on the, you know, what I've written on the page. And when you read it out loud, you can hear these rhythms and you can hear when something's going on too long. You can hear when it lands awkwardly. And that was how I... Nobody taught me that. It just happened. It's how I came to edit. And now, and I wrote on deadline. Uh, I worked for the Associated Press and for Bloomberg for most of my career. So my deadline was constant. I didn't have the ability to cover something in the morning and spend all day writing it and polishing it. So when I write songs now, people are amazed at how quickly the words come and how quickly I can edit them and shape them and get what I want. But to me, it's just a continuation of what I've done my whole life. And and uh, did you become a tunesmith while writing professionally, politically? I wrote my first song um, for my goddaughter's wedding. Um, and I sang it uh, at her wedding, which was the Saturday before the presidential election in 2008. <laughs> um, and then I started writing more uh, 
more often and with more purpose um, in 2010 after attending my first IBMA meeting and um, have been doing it since. But I was trying to write songs while writing daily journalism. It's really hard because the last thing you want to do when you've been at work all day writing is come home and write some more. Different kind of writing, but still writing. And I think there's a limited amount of space for words in your head. So um, I wrote, but not as frequently as I wanted. And one day at the end of 2016, one of my co-writers said, we have this amazing opportunity. You have to be in Nashville next week. It's like, I don't have any vacation time left. I can't do it. And that got me thinking. And I thought, okay, I've paid my dues. I've saved up money. I can do this. I'm getting out. And so I negotiated an exit with my boss for April to give them time to find my successor and for me to do a little bit of handoff training. And uh, I left in, in mid-April of 2017, and I've never looked back. So that, that invitation to, to travel to Nashville, that was the light bulb that, that went out? That was the moment that... I had been thinking about it off and on, but that was sort of the, okay, it's time. Quit talking about it, start doing it, or in this case, stop doing it. I understand. And so now that you've been in it for four years, five years now, approximately? Well, I've, I've, been, I've been retired for, for two years, but I really hit my stride as a writer, um, in a songwriter in 2011, 2012, and I had my first um, recordings, uh, hearing them on the radio, which is always cool, and seeing them on the charts. That started in 2015, so about four years, yeah. And was that Weeds with uh, Atkins and Loudermill? That was the first big song. I had a song cut before that, um, that that didn't go anywhere, but was my first cut. It was uh, with Jim and Valerie Gaypart, a band out of West Virginia. And then um, I wrote Weeds with my friend Chris Dawkins in this room, <laughs> and... Um, uh, gave it to Dave Atkins. I got the demo back on the day I was driving to IBMA. I thought, wow, Dave Atkins could kill this. The first person I saw when I got to IBMA was Dave Atkins. I played it for him outside the Bluegrass Today office, and he took it. Just like that. And that became my first number one. And subsequently, how many tunes have you either written or charted that we might be aware of? Well, um, uh, let's see. Depending on which chart you happen to right. pay attention to at the I time, I suppose. To any chart that has my name on it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best chart at the moment, um, and, and, and it varies. Of course, I feel a certain fondness for the Bluegrass Today chart because... That's where I work. Of course. That's where I worked for a long time. But um, I've had two number ones. I've had four top tens. And um, by the end of this year, songs that are licensed to be recorded this year, I think I should pass the 20 mark of oh, wow. songs recorded by other bands. So how, let's talk about the, the art of writing. I mean, certainly there's no, uh, I would guess that, no two uh, songwriters would approach the art 
at the same, how, how do you approach the art of writing, both as a, as a solo writer and as a co-writer? Uh, that's a great question, and I haven't really thought much about this, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll wing this a little bit, but I'm thinking it as, as we're talking. Um, every situation is different. Again, I think my journalism training helps. At The Wires, you never knew what you were covering on a given day. One day I had to be an expert on terrorism. One day I had to be an expert on the Fed and, and interest rates. You never knew what, what the topic was going to be, so you had to be a quick study. Um, I have written songs with co-writers that I would never think about writing on my own specifically a couple songs I've written with female writers from a female perspective which I know very little about <laughs> so but you know a good story is a good story so I try to I try to bring whatever the room is missing when I'm writing with someone I think that lyrics are my overall strength but I can think and hear in terms of melodies. Obviously, when I write alone, I do both. Um, I try to be the skill set that somebody else isn't bringing on a particular day, and you never know that until you get in the room. The other thing, when you write alone, and I still do a fair amount of that, when you write alone, you can write when you feel like it. You can write when you feel like you have something to say. I have an int I have a writing appointment coming up um, this Monday at nine in the morning with a woman who is um, a budding pop artist. She made the finals of The Voice in season eight, and I don't write much pop music. She's in her twenties. I haven't been in my twenties in a very long time, but. Um, between us, you know, we're gonna. I know we're gonna come up with a great song, and I'm eager to find out what it's gonna be about. I'm totally clueless going in. We don't know. We haven't talked for a couple of months. We've written once before, and um, we're gonna try it again. And we're gonna write the song in the room, whatever we feel at the moment. So I've learned to keep an open mind. And not get so hung up on one particular idea in, a, in any given session. And then just listening. Because so many times a great song comes out of a discussion like we're having. And somebody will say something and I'll reach for my phone or my notebook to write it down to come back to at some point. Either with that person or with another writer down the road. So... Um, you know, rule number one as a songwriter, I think, is just to be flexible and to really listen. Talk less, listen more. I've, I've heard um, write what you know. Is, is, that, is that a golden rule or, or is it overplayed? I think it's a starting point. If I'm writing alone, the best songs that I've written are writing about what I know. But a lot of songs with co-writers, if I wrote what I knew, I wouldn't write. 
with them, there'd be nothing to write about because the idea that takes off is something that is foreign to me. So I think it's a good starting point, but it's like every other rule. You break them. You can break them if you know them, and you're breaking them for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my goal isn't so much writing what I know, but writing in a way that it sounds like I know it and writing in a way that will reach you with your own experience and the person next to you on the bus and her own experience, that universal appeal. So I can write about, you know, I have written a song about the death of my father, but he's, he's nowhere in it do I say that he was my father. But it's, it's a song about death, and we all have experienced that and can relate to that. So it's finding the way in to your mind from what's coming out of, of my pen, if you will. Do, do you acknowledge um, any weaknesses as a songwriter that, that either you think you have to work on or, or you would seek out perhaps a co-writer to make up for whatever that perceived weakness is? Sure. Um, I, I think my melodies, because of hand issues and a general lack of faculty with a guitar, uh, I, you know, given, given my own path, I would play the same four chords all day, you know, uh, and the melodies would start. There's more than three. <laughs> I've discovered a new one. Oh, yes. excellent. Yes. Um, so, so I'm always open to writing with people who are much better at, at melody than I am. One of my biggest weaknesses, I think I have overcome, this used to drive Don Kenny, who's one of my, my primary co-writers, used to drive her batty. Because as a journalist, I was very specific in the words that I used and the sentence structures. And one of the things you want to do as a songwriter is be um, it, make it sound conversational. And it's like, well, how would you say that? And I'd say, well, you know, and then I'd say something, you know, much more down home than, oh, than yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I had just spelled out. She's, well, let's say it that way. So now every once in a while, I'll just throw out a line that's not proper King's English. And it's not the way I would have written it for the Associated Press. But it's the way that you would say it on the street, and Dawn will just look at me, and she says, Davey, you've come so far. <laughs> so, you consider yourself primarily a lyricist? I, I do, I do, um, but I don't, I, I don't close the lid on that, on that box. Um, I think that lyrics and ideas are my, my best skills. And, and um, what about the the application of the music to the the idea or lyrics is that something that you would engage in yourself or oh, oh sure um, I'm I'm all in in the creative process I will defer to you on a on a you know on a on a melody mm-hmm. more times than not but the whole time you're noodling with that melody and I'm trying to fit my words to that melody. You are kind of thinking about, well, that's not quite the right 
way to say that. And I'm thinking that might not be the right way to play that. So there's a, there's an interchange. I have one rule when we're when when I'm writing with someone, and I try to remember to say it at the beginning of every session with someone that I'm writing with for the first time. The first thing out of my mouth, if you're sitting down to write with me, is probably going to be, I am about to say some of the stupidest things you have ever heard come out of a human being's mouth, and you're going to let me say them. I call it a no-free zone. We don't <laughs> use the word no. I can tell when I'm writing with Dawn because we've done it for a long time. Um, we we we're like an old married couple. We finish each other's sentences, um, and we're always like very very much in tune with each other. Um, I can tell when Dawn isn't quite happy with the way I've proposed saying something because she'll say, hmm. Interesting. Let's see if we can beat that. That's her way of saying no without saying no. And so, in nine times out of ten, we can beat it. And it's a better song because of that. But the reason I want the freedom to say the stupidest thing you've ever heard is it won't make the song, but it might lead you or me to say something else that does make the song. It's a springboard. Understood. Understood. So uh, let's leap ahead a little bit. Let's, for sake of discussion, there there is a song that uh, you and uh, you and a co-writer are happy with. Um, there there is a process from having that tune written uh, to the point that you're satisfied with it to to the point where it becomes commercially available either on a stream or a CD or, or in some what typically is the next step of the process is it the is it recording of a demo is it a pitch from your notes your it, it can be either of those generally the path is we finish we get a song that we're happy with we'll lay down a work tape immediately while everything is still fresh um just either on you know either on the voice memo of our phones or if we're in the studio we'll you know we'll plug in record it in my zoom or record it you know through the board uh just as a work tape if it's good enough or if the artist that we think is perfect for it is on a tight schedule and is already in the studio or about to go in the studio, we may just pitch that work tape. We've done that. Uh, and we've had a fair amount of success with that. Generally, though, we'll do a work tape and then we'll, we have three or four folks that we use that are well-known names in the bluegrass business that we use to do demos. And we'll figure out which one of them is sort of best for that style song and we'll send it out for for a demo and then when we get the demo back we'll pitch that uh we just had recently a situation where a song that we wrote and pitched from a work tape with my vocal on it was picked up by a band to record and by the way for anyone that has not heard 
David Singh, it just he's a ringer for George Jones. <laughs> That's George George Robert Jones, the, the trash collector in Montgomery County. Yes. <laughs> um, I've had Cat Stevens. I've never had George Jones. Um, but I am not. A, I am not. I don't consider myself a, a singer. I would, if I'm singing on a work tape, my idea is generally to have it demoed. But the the ba- a band heard us rehearsing this song for a songwriter workshop, and they decided on the basis of us singing in the in the green room, they wanted to cut the song. Well, it didn't work out. Um, it's just one of those horror stories of the music business. But it didn't work out, and all of a sudden. So we never demoed that song because it was already being cut. And now all of a sudden it's not being cut. I sent it off to be demoed. And it takes a couple of weeks. And the day that I sent it off for the demo, I um, had a, a major artist that anyone listening to this would recognize ask me for songs. And she was going in the studio immediately. And so I thought, well, maybe... A, this is this is good for her, but I don't have time to wait for the demo. So I sent her the work tape, and she immediately put it on hold, which means she wants to record it for her next record. And is that a verbal agreement, or is that a written agreement with the artist? It's it's generally a, a verbal agreement. In this case, it it was there's an exchange of emails, so it is memorialized. Um, and and for how long? Is that tune on hold? It's there's 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 no hard and fast rule on on this. Um, with this particular artist, um, you know, I'm hoping that it's until her next record comes out, uh, which which uh, she's going in the studio now for a record that will come out in 2020. And I'm thinking, um, I mean, it typically, well, I'm not sure if it's typical, but but often um, artists m- might have a goal of producing one project per year, perhaps, or in the right. case of like the seldom seen one project every every millennium. Yeah. But so uh, so you have an artist on hold. Uh, would do you consider um, what their schedule is going to be like? Would would you? Would you not accept the hold if, if the artist said, yeah, I want this tune, but it's, it's going to be nine months before I get a chance to go in the studio for this thing? Um, it, frankly, it depends on the artist. Hmm. Um, you know, there are some bands that if they wanted to cut the song, I would give them the license to cut it. But if they wanted to put it on hold, I might think, well, let's do this. I'm going to keep pitching it. If it's still around, if it's still available when you're ready, let's talk. Uh, uh, some artists, though, you know, if this particular artist told me that she was going to record my song, and but it was either going to be the next record, 2020, or the one after that, frankly, I I hear her in my head singing this song i would probably wait but generally generally speaking i give the artist a hold until their next record is out if it's not on that record then i tell them you know i'd like to i'd like to pitch this 
and let's see what happens. And usually, if they're not going to put it on the very next project that they're doing, they'll generally let you know and say, "Look, I don't want to. I don't want to hold you up." Right. And and let you pitch it elsewhere. And and within the is the pitch a. Um um, can you line up artists in the pitch, or is or in other words, can you say, okay, you've got first dibs, you've got second dibs, you, or is that typically not something which is done? Again, it depends on the song. If I have a song that I hear a particular artist doing, I will pitch to that artist first and not do a more general pitch to mm-hmm. multiple people give him or her basically first dibs at it. But if nothing comes up or it's it's not right for that particular project, then I will pitch more broadly, you know, to three or four bands maybe that I can hear doing this song. It's um and and there's a there's a legal issue here. Um if if I write a song that has never been recorded by anyone it's never been cut i can control through my licensing who does that song first so if if you want to record my song and i'm okay with you recording my song i'll issue you i'll issue you what's called a first use license gives you the ability to record and release my song once it's out there once your record is out and the song is on the radio, and hopefully we've taken it to number one, and we've both made lots of money. Um, Let me know when that happens. <laughs> Come down here and celebrate. Yeah. Once, once that's done, then if Katie, say, wants to record the song, all she has to do is get what's called a compulsory license from me. There's, there's no first use anymore. That's out. Once it's out there, anybody who pays me, can record my song and I have no say. Now, uh, let me let me backtrack sure. a little. Is there a um, is there any uh, does any money exchange hand with with a first use license, or is that just a a document or some kind of an agreement? Um, in bluegrass, it's almost always just an agreement. Um, in pop or country, where there's much bigger sales and much bigger many more radio outlets and much bigger play possibilities. It's not unusual to have a price tag associated for with the first use license. You can record this song for $500 plus whatever there is covered under the, the, the mechanical license, the regular rate uh, of, of per units manufactured. But in bluegrass, it's almost always the money that you get back is the standard rate, nine point one cents, cents per yeah. per mm-hmm. unit manufactured. And 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 just to summarize, just for for a second, that that has to do with um, physical product being distributed, manufactured. I guess distributed re- really, and I believe that the minimum is five hundred units, so it's approximately fifty dollars per tune. There's, the 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 minimum is sort of a wives' tale. There is no minimum. Okay. Um, I can I can state a minimum in my license. Nine point one cents per unit manufactured 
uh, with a minimum of five. If if they deal with you directly, well, for a first use license, they have. To oh, oh, okay, okay, right, okay. I understand. So, okay, uh, so we've gotten to a point now where uh, we you've issued some type of a first use um, agreement with an artist, and in fact, they go into the studio, they record it. Um, there is now a CD out on the market with that tune on there. We briefly talked about mechanical licenses. Can can you talk about that? And um, and also, and of course, this is 2019 where CD sales are down and a lot of music is being streamed and there are other mechanisms. And talk about what other licenses or statue, statutory agreements might come into play with some of those other technologies? Well, at the, at the moment, the mechanical licenses from a songwriter's point of view are the only licenses that, that are out there right now. So once, I'm, once we have an agreement, a license for you to record a song that I wrote and you record it and you're you're selling it at shows and your label is pushing it and it's hopefully being played on the radio. There are two income streams for a non-performing songwriter, like, and that's, that's me. Um, one is that 9.1 cents per unit um, divided in half if you co-write or in thirds if you, if you do a three-way write and half to the publisher and half to the writer. So that so the millions of dollars are disappearing that slowly. The pie can get can get pretty small. Yes. I own my own publishing company, so I get to keep my share of publishing and uh, the writing. And and before we go, uh, what is your publishing company? What um, name do you? My publishing company is Paddle Faster Publishing. Okay. Uh, named after a, a uh, named after a line in a movie that bluegrass fans uh, show okay. uh, from the movie Deliverance. And and you are associated. That publishing company is uh, covered by whom? Uh, BMI, CSAC. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of BMI, okay. and my publishing company is a BMI. Company. Okay, and they are a pro. Uh, PRO. PRO. Right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Uh, and people call them pros. Yeah, yeah. Uh, publishing rights organizations. Right. So, so. I make money through you selling your product, and I also make money when it's played on the air or online. Um, uh, and that money I get through my affiliation with BMI. They they collect and administer uh, the the royalties for all BMI members. Um, when, when they put out songs. So once a quarter, I get a statement for me as the writer and a statement for Paddle Faster Publishing, which also represents some of my co-writers. Um, I, I get two quarterly statements uh, with those royalties split up. The, um, the amount of money varies wildly. Um, the, 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 the cash cow... From a royalty standpoint, the cash cow is Sirius XM, Bluegrass Junction. They pay far more than regular AM, FM radio stations. They pay far more than YouTube and Spotify and, and Pandora. And is that because of their reach, the number of listeners that they may have at any one given 
it's, moment. It's, it's 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 the reach. It's also they they were late to the party. Uh, most of the most of the rules that we're under with copyright now were have been around since 1972, which predates satellite radio, obviously, and streaming. So um, they pay because of their reach, and also they pay. Um, if a radio station plays my song once, it's played once. If if satellite radio plays it once during a show, if Kyle Cantrell plays it during his show, then it's you know there are going to, there's a lot of hours in the day when they when they don't have a live host in the studio and and they're pre-programmed so. If he plays it once, it's probably going to play four or five times during the day, and then they have various. They not only have the station, they have the they they have um, um, home you know, where you can dial it up on demand. Yes, and listen to shows, and they all they, those all count as as spins. So if you get up up, if Sirius XM plays your song, it magnifies the amount of money that that you get just from what might sound like a single play but uh they're the they're the biggies in terms of the radio in the of the playback royalties i just looked before you came today i looked up um my last quarterly statement last month from bmi and during the three-month period that it covered i had five just over five thousand spins or i should say um streams on pandora and and spotify on youtube um and um (laughs) i added up just because i'm a masochist i added up (laughs) uh, those spin or those streams determined there were a little over five thousand for which i got paid my writer share was a whopping 31 cents um hard to pay the mortgage on on that and is that rate um by statute um it is sort of um there's a rate that 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 they pay that the streaming services pay uh, a minimum they can they can pay more than that and it it is supposed to depend on how much advertising they get, you know, the writer theoretically shares in the advertising revenue, but you know, it's hundreds of a cent basically per per stream. Um, so uh, there there is um, there there is an agreement recently reached that would that would require them to boost their payments to songwriters by forty percent. Now that sounds like a lot, but it's forty percent of a very low number. Sure, but um, um, and all but uh, all of the major streaming players except Apple Music are appealing that ruling. So uh, who knows what's going to happen in the in at the end of the day? We should see more money than we're getting, but it could be a lot less than the agreement originally. So, so with, with regard specifically to what's typical in in bluegrass music, and I'm by the way, I'm not sure. Are you writing for any other genre, or? or? Um, uh, yes. Asterisk. Um, most 
all of my cuts so far have been in, in bluegrass, but in the last six months to a year, I have uh, moved into, I've moved into pop a little bit. I've moved into, uh, into uh, uh, country uh, music a little bit. I, I just wrote with a big Canadian country um, artist um, in early March. He was in Nashville and I flew out and, and we wrote. So I have high hopes that the song that we are in the process of finishing will end up on his next record, um, which would be my first country cut. been writing a lot of gospel lately, mm. and I've gotten some interest. Uh, it's, all, it's written primarily as bluegrass gospel, but I've gotten some interest from a publisher who works in the, um, in the uh, southern gospel arena and in the mainstream uh, contemporary Christian market, so uh, w where there is still a lot more sales than in bluegrass. And and in, in today's world, there are, you see a lot of bluegrass bands crossing over back and forth between exactly. bluegrass and, exactly. and gospel music. So if if um, if I were a uh, an up and coming songwriter, or someone I interested, I mean, it sounds like the majority of any compensation that might be derived from um, writing tunes for bluegrass is still through the sales of CDs. Is um, CDs or downloads? Or, if, okay, and, and downloads, unfortunately, they're still out there, but they too are are becoming less and less as streaming becomes more and more prevalent. But a download, you can still go on iTunes, for example, and download a song that I wrote, say Weeds, that I wrote for Adkins and Loudermilk, you can still download that. And I get out of your 99 cents or your dollar twenty nine, whatever you're paying yes, for the song. Per track. Yeah. I still get my nine point one cents as I would if you were if if you bought the C D. So that's where the money is, right? That's well that's where that's where the, the bulk of the money is for oh, sure. Okay. Um Backing up just just a little bit, I'm 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 curious. I'm I'm aware of an anecdote um, um, that has to do with the uh, the first time that Chris Stewart, who is a songwriter in the West Coast, heard his song being performed, and the song was uh, "Don't Throw Mama's Flowers Away," and and it was cut by uh, Danny Paisley and um, and the Southern Grass. And uh, according to stories, Chris was backstage and he heard it being performed live for the very first time. And he turned around and he said to someone, so that's what it's supposed to sound like. Ha have you have you ever, do you have a similar reaction? And, and I'm also curious, do you have, have you ever been in a situation where, where you said, oh my God, no, that, that, that's, that's not what I agree <laughs> Um, both both ways. Um, the, yeah, the first time, the first time I ever heard a song of mine performed uh, was it was live. It was in Roanoke. I mean, I remember it like I remember major, major, major events in my life because it's something that I always, I always hoped for. But in the back of my mind, I thought oh, that's probably never going to happen. I'm never going to hear one of my songs, you know, on the radio. I'm never going to hear one of my songs in a show. And um, I, it was a, it was a double win for me. I not only got to hear the song live for the first time, but 
the day before, I got to be a fly on the wall in the studio when the band recorded the song. The song was the 10th day of September that I wrote with my friend John Miller in, about an anniversary of September 11th. And um, the band was called The Travelers. And they did just a superb arrangement of this song in the studio. And I thought, that's it. That's why I did this. Because I only heard it guitar and vocal when we wrote it. Is this The Travelers with Norman and... Yeah, uh... It's the Nor Norman Wright, uh, uh, Kevin Church, mm -hmm. um, Mike Connor, John Miller. They recorded the song, and it was just stunningly beautiful. And I would say that even if I hadn't written that song. They did an incredible job on it. And then, of course... Um, they mixed it, they mastered it, and the band broke up before the record came out. So I, I have a I have a really well done demo of that <laughs> song, but it never, uh, other than being it 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 was played at the at a concert that was happened to be um, recorded. It was a benefit um, for Herschel Sizemore, the mandolin player, and uh, the Travelers played it at their show and. There was a video, uh, a DVD made of that concert, so it it was recorded on a video on a DVD, but never on it never came out in in CD form. But then the flip side, you write a song and it's like you have no control of the arrangement after you license it. You know, the band can they can make it very close to what you what you wrote and and demoed. Or, you know, if they want, they could make it a hip-hop song. You know, you just, you can't control it. I've had bands um, take songs that I had really high hopes for and add, um, you know, literally two minutes of instrumental breaks at three different parts in the song and take a perfect three-minute radio song and turn it into a five-and-a-half-minute song that no one's ever going to play on the air. And it's like... Why did they do that? What were they thinking? So there is no rights of refusal once once I license it, it's what gone. You do with the arrangement is your call. And it's really hard because it's like giving up. It's easier now because I've become more cynical about the business. But at first it was like, you know, you're giving up your child and giving it you know, giving someone else custody of your child and you no longer have a say in how they raise your child. It's like... <laughs> be, be that a warning. <laughs> so we, we've covered um, a fair amount of territory here. Is, is there anything um, critical or important that we've sort of left out of the, the discussion, songwriting? Well, I have a... I, I, I want to say something in case there's someone out there who is in the position that I was in not that long ago. Please do. Knowing a lot about songwriting and wanting to be a songwriter. You know, we talk a lot about the frustrations of, especially in bluegrass, of the lack of ability to, to, to make money. But the truth of the matter is, I don't write songs and you shouldn't write songs to make money. You write songs because you have something to say. And as long as you have something to say, say it. Everything else will take care of itself. The other part of it is, though, don't 
you know, don't just give it away. Don't just not try to monetize it because it's called the music business for a reason. And most of us don't want to pay any attention to business. We just want to pay attention to the music because it's fun. And that's, you know, everybody sees the music side when you're up on stage and you've got the adoring fans. And when people come up to you at the table afterwards and say, did you write that song? It's a great feeling, but it's, it, it is only one part of the equation. So learn everything you can. I decided that there was not a lot of attention. There were not a lot of people in bluegrass that I was dealing with who knew enough about the music business to that I could learn from. So I've always been interested in learning things that I'm involved in. So I decided I needed to learn about the music business, publishing, copyright law, licensing, all of those things so that I could be smarter about it. And um, I went, I took uh, online courses. I have, a, I, have an, I have a certificate from the Berklee College of Music in music business. Uh, I, I took three or four courses uh, from them. Ace them all, I'd like to say. And um, <laughs> um, I've gotten to the point where not only do I understand it better, but I get calls from some pretty big names in the bluegrass music business, uh, bands, band leaders, and songwriters, who I'm surprised they're calling me for advice about the music business and about licensing because, you know, like me earlier, you know, we just don't pay attention to that kind of stuff. So pay attention to that kind of stuff. Find somebody who knows their way around a license. Find somebody who's been on the other side of dealing with a, a band or with a record label who doesn't want to pay you for the work that they've already recorded. Uh, it happens, and you need to know how to deal with that. Um, and then, once you know that, then play your heart out and, 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 and write your butt off. And uh, every song I write, I think I learn something, no matter who I write with. And my goal is, I'm not where I want to be. Um, I don't know it all, despite what my wife may say on occasion. I uh, I have a lot to learn, and I and I'm still trying to learn, and I hope that I'm still learning this for for a long time. Let me uh, let me just add the of course the the IBMA the International Bluegrass Music Association is a pro professional organization for bluegrass professionals, and of course the. Um, the uh, description of what a bluegrass professional is is pretty broad and pretty much left up to the individual these days. You you do participate in IBMA songwriting events, do do you not? I I, I do. I'm a I'm a life member of IBMA. I and and um, I joined in 2010, I believe, was my first my first time there. And very soon after that, I think 2012. I became a life member because I think what they do is vital to what I do, and we need a strong presence in the industry, and they're it. Uh, I'm uh, I'm proud to say that I, uh, 
I'm now a member of the IBMA Songwriting Committee. We're busy planning uh, events that we will have at this year's conference, uh, last week of September in, in Raleigh. Uh, IBMA.org, uh, check it out. And there are other um, songwriting-related, not necessarily bluegrass, but there's some great songwriting material out there online. Um, uh, you know, if, if it's what you want to do, uh, consider it your education. There, there is typically a songwriter's track at the World of Bluegrass Business Conference? There, there, there is. There has been for the past uh, uh, three or four years. And um, uh, it, they're, they're doing some amazing things. Uh, if you sign up, uh, if, if you're a member, you can sign up for the Songwriting Committee newsletter where you get great advice on not only the music side but the business side uh, from people who have been at it for a lot longer than I have and who know a lot more than I do. And I, you know, I, I help write that newsletter, but I still learn. I read it uh, cover to cover and I learn something every month. And I'm assuming that you would encourage anyone that would like to be more aware of the songwriting business as it pertains to um, uh, bluegrass music to register at the World of Bluegrass and attend um, that last week of September. Absolutely. There's, you know, there's a lot to be learned from reading about something, but when you get to sit in a room and talk one-on-one -on -one or hear people making presentations who are in the song, who are in the Bluegrass Hall of Fame, who have you know gold records, who have won Songwriter of the Year awards, who are still they turn up you know certain names turn up on just about every bluegrass record that gets released. You can count on you know uh, you, you, if you pick up five bluegrass records that are coming out this month, you can be sure to run across names like Jerry Sally, Donna Ulysses, uh, Brink Brinkman, um, Paula Breedlove. You know those are names that pop up again and again and as many or more uh women as there are men in songwriting bluegrass songwriting these days there's there's certain there there certainly are and um um i mentioned donna ulysses uh, uh louisa branscom who um uh she just received uh, in 2018 last year received a um a special award uh lifetime achievement award from uh, from IBMA for songwriting. That's one step removed from the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, she's, you know, you, you've, if you know anything about bluegrass, you know about Alison Krauss. And if you know about Alison Krauss, you have heard Louise's song, Steel Rails. It's still one of the best bluegrass songs ever. It is a classic. It is a classic. And it's being re released this month. Oh, oh excellent. Excellent. Oh, that that's right. She's, By, uh, uh, Louisa has a Louisa has a, a songwriter project with a bunch of all stars. Yep, and and I believe that that's right. I read uh, Dale Ann Bradley and uh, I think Donna and uh, uh, Donna. I think Clara Lynch is on there. Yeah. Molly Tuttle, yeah. Missy uh, Rains uh, co-produced it. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Well, I and and I'll vouch that uh, the world of bluegrass is the place you want to be. Uh, David is. Uh, Imminently approachable. I would just say, just look down and look for the guy wearing the Chucks sneakers and uh, and ask questions. Um, David, I think this might be a, a good a good place to say thank you very much and thank you so much for your time. And I've enjoyed it as always. And uh, unless you've got something else uh, on your mind, no, I think uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. Thank you for. Uh, 
for being willing to talk to me. Thank you for doing this uh, with Katie and Akira. Um, and thank you for everything else you do. One of these days, we're going to sit down and we're going to play. That was Howard Parker and David Morris talking about the art and the business of songwriting. Thanks again for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Mm-hmm.